All right, if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, if you don't have a Bible and you'd love a free one, just raise your hand. Uh, we will gladly uh, run one to you. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to be uh, really, we're going to go through 1 through 13. Uh, let me just start. We're going to kind of read very quickly to give an overview of where we're going to go. And if you say, well, hey, I don't know what any of that said, it's all right. We're going to talk about it in detail. Uh, and so let's go. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, okay, we'll talk about that therefore here in a second. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, being God, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. We'll talk about that in a second. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken on the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, verse 6, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying that through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God, and this might be familiar to some of you, for the word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And we all say, Ooh, right? Makes you a little uncomfortable that we are all naked, uh, which is, it's all true. It's in the Bible, okay? So, so let's do this. It's been about a month uh, since we've been in our travels through the letter of, of Hebrews. And so let me give you a real quick season recap uh, before we start hitting this kind of hard over the next couple months. Uh, the writer, uh, we don't know who they are. Uh, the writer, though, is admonishing and rebuking and warning and pleading with his right, with his readers to to take their relationship with God uh, with complete seriousness and complete devotion. Uh, in fact, his desire is that they would not drift away from that moment that they heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And and so so right out of the gate, we realize that the intended audience is the church, uh, is that people who have made a profession of faith. In Jesus Christ, to say that hey, my desire is for you to be both the Savior of my life and the Lord of my heart. And so, so in order to draw us into worship, because just telling someone to do something 
isn't going to really ever work for anything because we don't like to be told what to do, right? Uh, and so what the writer does is he motivates us uh, by, simp- by doing something so beautiful and so simple. And he tells us, okay, I want you to meditate and I want you to ponder and I want you to pursue and I want you to put into practice what Jesus has made possible for you. And then I, I want you to, to look at how great Jesus is and to never stop looking at him. In fact, he, he opens the letter by, by talking about Christ and he says he is the, the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And then, then he kind of moves us along and he tells us, hey, if, if you thought angels were pretty cool, uh, you should know Jesus is greater than the angels. And then, then he says, if you thought Moses, who for these readers, this would have been a very significant hero because a lot of their uh, uh, freedom was based on uh, what Moses has done for the nation of Israel. And he says, if you think Moses is important, you need to realize that Moses bends knee to Jesus. That, that, that Moses was, was a caretaker inside a house, and Christ is the son of the house. He has ownership and governance, and he provides for those who are in the house. And he says, keep your eyes on him. And what we've, what we've been given an opportunity to respond to when it comes to examining our hearts is, is some, some very honest warnings and, or, or exhortations uh, in the sense that uh, the first one we saw was in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Uh, where the writer points out the danger of drifting away from the Word because of neglect. He says, don't drift away. He says, always stay anchored to Christ. Always stay anchored because it's easy for you to drift. In fact, in this appeal, he explains that the danger of doubting and disbelieving the Word uh, is really the result of the hardness of our hearts. So he says, be aware of how hard your heart is when it comes to not just life with each other, but life specifically uh, with God. And then chapter 3 ended with this warning that, that it was unbelief that kept the people of Israel from entering the promised land and the rest that God has promised there. And, and we, we saw a verse in verse 19 of chapter 3 that simply says this, So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. And, and the point that we kind of drew at the end of that uh, pursuit that day was, um, was that we must care enough about each other that, that every day we are in each other's lives and we exhort each other uh, not to let distrust in God creep in and destroy. Uh, because that's exactly what it will do. It will creep in and it will destroy. And we got this from chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But, but exhort one another uh, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, so the conclusion that we draw from verse 19 is that, is that unbelief is such a constant and such a, uh, a pressing, dangerous temptation that we help each other fight it off. That, that when we see it in one another's life, we come and we bring help and we bring strength for that fight. In fact, perse- persevering uh, in faith to the end is very much a community project. Uh, and so, so it goes back to uh, just because you show up here uh, on a Sunday morning and it seems like we're part of a community 
doesn't necessarily mean you're in a community uh, because there's very much a practice of being vulnerable and walking with one another and going through some of the junk together. Uh, and so, so now here we are at the beginning of, of chapter 4 and the writer draws another conclusion uh, from Hebrews 3 verse 19 or at least the conclusion of what he says in 19. Uh, he says this, Therefore, okay, and so, so that's the sign that he's drawing a conclusion from somewhere that he's just previously stated. Again, we base it off of 3.19. He says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, then he gives us three words. What are they? Let us fear. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And so, so what was... What is his conclusion from the fact that Israel was not able to enter God's rest because of unbelief? His, his conclusion is that we should fear, that we should be concerned about that. Now, now that word fear can take shape in many forms. Uh, and, and my intention here is that I don't want to water it down for those who need to understand its urgency, uh, that, that it provokes that word. Uh, but at the same time, I, I don't want to use it as a weapon to threaten you in such a way that you were just led by guilt, um, because that's that's not the intention of the word. And so, so when verse one says, "Let us fear," uh, the the intention here is to get our attention. It's it's to, to to get our attention because where we are traveling is a matter of life and death. That's that's the stakes of the game that the author is writing here. He says, "Let us fear." He wants to get our attention. I think. Perhaps a better way, a better place to begin understanding this uh, is, is understanding how uh, there are spiritual lessons when it comes to the geography of Israel's experiences in the early part of the New Old Testament. Because that's what he keeps alluding to. Uh, and so, so for instance, uh, Israel, uh, the Israelites, they were a nation who was taken into slavery, who escaped into the wilderness and made their way to the promised land. And so, so the nation's bondage in Egypt is simply this illustration of, of the sinner's bondage in this world. That's all it is. In fact, uh, much as Israel was delivered from Egypt by the blood of lambs uh, and the power of God, so, so a sinner who believes on Christ is delivered from the bondage of sin uh, every single time. In fact, uh, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God whose death and resurrection makes way uh, for our deliverance, and it makes um, our deliverance of sin a reality, not just a hope. And, and so, so, so the promised land represents for the Christian uh, it, all the things that are within our reach because of Christ. All of them. And if you, if you just spend some time, I plead with you, spend some time in the New Testament and hear specifically some of the things that Paul says is available to you. Because my, my contention is that there are so many of us uh, who love Jesus, who want to follow Jesus, but have no idea of the immeasurable riches that are available to us. Have no idea of the incredible power that is available to us. And so, so, so when we talk about this, we need to understand that with this background, we, we can better understand that one of the key words in this section is rest. Because let's be honest, that's what we're all trying to get to, right? Every day, you wake up and you say, if you're, you ever woken up and said, boy, I can't wait until I get to take a nap today, right? 
I, I can't wait until I go to bed tonight. Right? I'm convinced that Misty is trying to turn me into like a, a Charlie from Willy Wonka's grandparents. They just stay in the bed all the time. Because uh, we slowly, slowly, slowly start getting in bed earlier and earlier. And, uh, and it's working. So when she says, hey, I'm going to bed, I'm like, I'll go with you. <laughs> so, so the key word here is rest. And the writer mentions two different rests that are found in the Old Testament history. He, he references, firstly, God's Sabbath rest when he ceases to create uh, on that seventh day. You can go to it's Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. And then secondly, he talks about Israel's rest as they enter into Canaan or, or the promised land. And you can go uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12 or, or Joshua chapter 21 uh, for that. And so, so for us, uh, we live in the middle of an even greater promise of rest. Uh, in fact, there's three that very quickly I, I want us to, to kind of look at and explore. Uh, and if you, I think these are your only blanks that we put in your talk notes today. Uh, that number one, uh, the rest that Jesus makes possible is our rest through salvation. Uh, through salvation. That, that even though Israel did not immediately go from Egypt to the promised land, uh, that they were free from the rest of the bondage of the slavery that they were trapped in for their entire lives. Understand that. When, Israel, when the Israelites left Egypt, it was the very first time in their whole lives that they've experienced a moment of freedom. And, and so, so for us, this, this is the first rest we enter into when, when it comes to life with God. We're no longer mastered by sin or the enemy. We, our, our great hero has saved us and, and we can rest in him and what he's made a possible what he's made possible we are no longer hostile towards God and his ways because because our eyes and our hearts have been opened to his great care for us and we respond with joy with adoration and we can we can rest because we realize that our guard does not have to be up against him for he is leading us to, to green pastures and he's leading us to still waters. He is willing to lead us to places and to great provision and where satisfaction is not in the things and the circumstances of this world, but rather in knowing and being known by him and him alone. That's the great provision that Christ offers us. Number two, which leads us to our second rest, that, that, we, that Jesus offers us a rest through our submission. Through our submission. This is where our lives differ from, uh, can differ from the Israelites of the Old Testament, the, uh, the writers warning us of, that, that their unbelief led them away from submitting their hearts and their lives to God. They, they, they didn't trust Him. They didn't. In fact, uh, they, they were not willing to follow. Instead, they would, and it sounds so ridiculous, they would openly pine for the slavery that they experienced in Egypt. They would experience a circumstance in the desert and they would look at Moses and be like, why are you being mean, man? Why would you lead us here? I mean, we, I mean, it wasn't great in Egypt, but at least it wasn't this. And the whole while, Moses is saying, hey, God is leading you somewhere greater. God is taking you somewhere greater. And this whole wilderness experience is because God is leading you. God is taking you. God is showing you how incredibly rich He is for you. 
how incredibly powerful and strong He is for you. And yet they would constantly pine for the slavery of, of Egypt. And now we can, we can rest because we realize that our guard doesn't have to be against Him. That, that He's willing to, to lead us. And, and what's, what, I guess my issue with the Israelites is they expose me too easily. Because their dysfunction is my dysfunction. And sometimes I hope it's your dysfunction, but then I also hope that it's not your dysfunction. And what they fail to realize in those moments, and what I fail to realize in those moments, is the freedom that comes with submission when the submission is towards the only one who is able to care and provide perfectly, without flaw, without deviance from His plan at any time. Oh, that that we would be, we would grow to be believers who find our deepest rest as we submit our lives while being wrapped in the arms of our Heavenly Father. It's entirely possible. A Father who, who loves and cares for us in ways our doubts and our unbelief keeps us from experiencing because we don't understand just how full of glory and deserving of praise He is. Number three, Jesus makes possible our rest through our inheritance. Through an inheritance that, that when Jesus takes reign as king of our hearts, we gain access to all that is his. To all that is his. Access to God's immeasurable riches and love and access to the promised Holy Spirit today and a future inheritance that comes when heaven, uh, in heaven when this life passes, that, that we are rich beyond all comprehension in Jesus. We are rich beyond all comprehension, which is why it's so strange to me when so many of us are in the church walk around so defeated by the circumstances of difficult seasons of life. In fact, uh, the, the enemy, he long, this is what you need to know, the enemy longs for you to take your eyes off Jesus and to forget what he's made available for you today and for tomorrow. Because if he, can, if he can do that, if he can get your eyes off of your hope for tomorrow, he believes he can affect any hope that you have today to stand firm. Any hope. In fact, uh, he, he wants you to stop fighting the good fight of salvation. And so Jesus brings rest in that our inheritance is based on him, not, not on our own abilities, right? Not our own willingness to, to pull our lives up from our own bootstraps and tell everybody how strong we can be. That our inheritance is based on him, provided by what he does, secured by the truth of, of something we read back in uh, chapter 1, verse 4. That it says this, that, that after Jesus made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. And so we come back to this passage this morning. And, and, and what we know is that it's about how and where we find our rest. Which again, it's what we want. How and where we find our rest. But it's laced with a very serious warning. Which is why we come back to verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So the question is, what, what are we to fear? Right? 
uh, and the answer is that, that any of us should fail to reach it. Now the question is, to reach what? This is the way my brain works. To, to reach what? And we're talking about the restful haven of salvation. That's, that's the warning here. That is, that is fear so that you don't even appear to have missed heaven. Because if you go on this way, the author is saying, you will miss it. He says, you will. In fact, uh, we will not enter into God's rest or, or God's heaven if we do not trust his promises. And now if we stay connected with chapter 3, verse 19, uh, we can see more clearly that the thing that we are to fear is unbelief. That, that therefore, fear that unbelief, that, that because... Uh, that's what will keep you from entering that rest. That's what will keep you from entering uh, God's heaven. That fear, unbelief. Fear not trusting God. And some of us get exposed right there. And that's okay. It's okay. It's okay to be exposed. Because it's helpful to know. And so you can see this confirmed if we just keep reading. And you're, somebody's like, I wish you would, because that's a lot of verses. Um, if we keep on going to verse 2. And notice, notice that verse 2 begins with the word for. So that, that means he's giving you a reason for verse 1. The reason why we should fear, fear. He says this, For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So, so he continues to compare Israel's situation in the wilderness to the situation of believers in his day, which is really similar to the believers of our day, that they had the good news preached to them, like we have the good news preached to us, and, and, and what was the good news preached to them? That's a good question to ask, right? Uh, in fact, there's a lot of places you can go. Specifically, we're going to look at, at Exodus chapter 34, and we're going to look at, at basically a verse and a half of it. Um, that when God is speaking and teaching them his heart, uh, he says this. He says, uh, verse 6, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, okay, talking about Moses, uh, God passes before him and proclaims this, The Lord, the Lord, okay, in case you didn't know who it was, it's the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiven iniquity and transgression in sin. This, this was the good news presented to them. It was a love and mercy and forgiveness of the every kind of the iniquity and the transgression and the sins of their lives. Which is our story. It's the good news of Jesus. That every kind of iniquity, every kind of transgression, every kind of sin can be satisfied in Him. Can be fulfilled or, or I guess, uh, rescued from in Him. And it was good news. It was the good news of God's promise that God would bring them into this land that He says is flowing with, with milk and honey which I think of Dr. Pepper and Nutty Buddies, right? That's really, it's it's the way to my heart, man. But all they had to do was trust Him. And all they had to do was render their hearts to Him and not rebel. And so the writer says that the Israelites had heard 
the gospel just like his readers had. Uh, granted, not the foundation of it in the death and the resurrection of Christ, uh, which his readers have heard, which is a better promise. But, but, but still, the promise that, that God is merciful and God forgives sins and he promises rest and he grants joy to those who trust him. So, so there's this very similar situation between the Israelites and, and the readers of this letter. And the point is this. The good news was not believed by Israel, so they did not enter God's rest. God's promised joy. Verse 2, For God, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So, so, so they, in other words, they just didn't believe it. They heard all that was available and they just said, I, I don't believe it. They, they doubted God. They distrusted Him. They did not have faith in His promise to give them a better future uh, than they had in Egypt. And so, so they gave up on God. And they wanted the old life back. And now, what was the result of, of their unbelief? Verse 2 says, it did not profit them. It was no value to them. It did not save them. And in verse Hebrews 3.19 said, they did not enter God's rest. So they died literally in the wilderness of their own lives. And God swore his wrath that they would never enter his rest. And it's a, it's a picture of, of missing heaven, guys. And so, so the point of verse 2 is exactly the same as 3.19, that it's a reason why we should fear unbelief. We should fear unbelief. There, therefore, we fear unbelief, as verse 1 says, because when the good news to Israel was not united to faith, it didn't profit them anything, and they perished. And, and so, so the main point is fear Fear this happening to you. This is what he says. Fear this happening to you. Fear hearing the promises of God and not trusting them. Because uh, the, the same things will happen to us as it does to them. We will not enter that rest that we all want. We all want. Now, as I say that, okay, here's, here's what we have to reconcile. Because the normal Christian life is aware of the fearful danger of unbelief, but it does not paralyze, or we shouldn't be terrorized by it, because we live in, in faith. And so that's, that's the main point of this whole passage, that we would fear unbelief uh, in verse 1. In verse 11, it says it in a different way. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. We just jump nine verses. You're welcome. Okay? So Israel falls from the promised joy of God because of the disobedience of their unbelief. And the same thing can happen to us if we're not careful. And so to keep it from happening and to, to show that we are more than just mere professing Christians, he says, uh, he's been saying this all along, he says, be diligent to enter God's rest. To, so, so pay close attention to what you've heard. He said that in chapter 2, verse 1. Do not neglect your, your great salvation. He says that in chapter 2, verse 3. He says, consider Jesus in chapter 3, verse 1. Do not harden your hearts in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, he says take care against any unbelieving heart. Chapter 3, verse 12. Exhort one another every day against the deceitfulness of sin. Chapter 3, verse 14. And he says, fear the unbelief that will keep you from promised rest. Chapter 4, verse 1. And so, 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 so do, you, do you see the lesson here? That the Christian life is a life 
of day-by-day, hour-by-hour trust in the promises of God to help us and guide us and to take care of us and to forgive us and to bring us into a future of holiness and joy that will satisfy our hearts infinitely more than if we forsake Him and put our trust in ourselves or in the promises of the world. And that that day-by-day, hour-by-hour trust in God's promises, here's what the author is telling us, not automatic. It isn't. It's the result of daily diligence, and, and it's the result of proper fear. That's what he says. Now, now think about this fear with me for a moment. Not that we haven't been thinking about fear. Um, you, you may be asking, okay, so, so are you telling me that the ideal Christian life is a person who lives in the constant fear of being lost? And, and for that, I, I, I would encourage you, first of all, to get off my back, because I didn't write it. Okay? This isn't my theology that I've created. In fact, we like to do a lot of fact-checking here, and so you can go to the Bible. Okay? God says this in chapter 4, verse 1 of Hebrews. Uh, Jesus says it in Luke chapter 12, verse 5. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Paul says it in, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear in trembling. He says again in Romans chapter eleven twenty, you stand fast only through faith, so do not be conceited, but fear. Okay? So so let's be careful how we reconcile this truth. It, it's God's word. It's not my word that says the Christian is to fear. Because one of the things that religion has done for centuries is try to control people through fear. Try to control people through guilt. And the problem with that is it's not necessarily the way the Bible was presented to us. So, so, so with all humility and openness, we, we ask God, are we supposed to live in constant fear of missing heaven? And for that, the answer is no. In fact, let's, let's remember real quickly back Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15. Christ died to deliver all those through fear of death. Um, to deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. So, so loud and clear, Christ died to deliver us from slavish fear. He has. In fact, uh, Christ wants fearless people. I mean, if you just travel through the Gospels, he looks at his disciples and he says, you're going to need courage. You're going to need courage to take your next step, to take your next breath. In fact, Christ wants a people who are willing to live in the most dangerous neighborhoods without fear. He wants people who who are willing to go to unreached people and marginalized people uh, and speak to them behind closed doors without fear. People who are willing to speak to their neighbors about Christ without fear. Fear. Now, now, how do we do that? We do it by faith in His promises. That, that, that faith in the promise of God makes you fearless before the threats of men. And that's what we see played out. And that's what we get encouraged about when we look at some of the early, uh, in the book of Acts, we see the disciples, they're, they're looking down the barrel of guns, basically. Now, there's not really guns back then, Scott. Just work with me. Alright? They're looking down the barrel, and it looks like their life is about to end. And all they have to do is keep their mouth shut. And they look and they say, I, we can't. We can't. I, I, can't yet, I can't but speak about what Christ has done for me. 
I can't, I can't but shout it from the rooftops. I can't but lay hands on people and in the name of Jesus see the dead come back to life, see the broken become healed, see those who are afflicted become completely free. So I can't do it. And that's that kind of courage that Christ says is available to us all. To every single one of us. So keep that in mind the next time you're like, ah, I think the Holy Spirit's telling me to talk to that person. And you're like, ah, I don't know. It makes me feel uncomfortable. It's exactly it. I love it when the Holy Spirit tells me, I don't care. You can either submit your life to me or not. So, so really, when it all comes down to it, there, there's just one thing that the Bible tells us to fear. And it's faithlessness. That's what it comes down to. Fear unbelief in the promises of God because as long as you are trusting in the promises of God, you can be utterly fearless in the face of anything. Even death. Even God. Like that's... It says that, 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 that love casts out fear. And if God is love, then that means when we are in His presence and we truly understand who we are in Christ, we can be in His presence and not fear in the sense that we fear. So what is that like? You might not remember because a lot of you are too old now. But maybe if you were a parent, you get this game. Your children understand what, what fear is like, what this... It's, it's kind of like when you were growing up and your mom or your dad said, hey, um, don't ever run into the street. Right? You ever done that? I remember, remember one day I broke Barrick um, because he was young, like three or four, and we we're in the front yard, and he decides, I think I'm just going to go in the street. And we yell at him, and we grab him, we pull him back, and his eyes are like, this is something new. And we literally tried to put the fear of God into him. And we said, hey, you can't run into the street. Because it's dangerous there. You'll die. People will run over you. That's why he has this phobia of streets. It's fine. We're, work, <laughs> we're working through it. it but here, here's what we know. that, In other words, you, we, we fear, or we try to teach our kids fear running out into the street. Now, as I say that, um, does that mean that they can have no fun when they're outside? <laughs> like in the backyard? Like, hey, I can't have any fun in the backyard because the street's over there. I might die. Does it mean they can't go to the park or, or, or play in the side yard? No. In fact, most of the time, uh, you never even thought about how fearful the street was when you were in those places. That, that it's only when you got near the street and maybe when your ball rolled out across the street or, or when your idiotic friend was tempting you to sprint across the street uh, when you weren't supposed to, only then did you feel the awareness of the fear of the street. Only then. The rest of the time, the fear kept you from playing in places where you didn't have to feel any fear at all. And, and that, that's, that's the way it is with the fear of unbelief. That's what it is, that, that you don't live in this constant bad feeling. Okay? You need to understand that. 
you're not called to live in this constant bad feeling, that, that you only experience that bad feeling when there are temptations to distrust God's promises. In fact, uh, even, even then, you use that bad feeling of fear to send you running to the safe yard of, of God's goodness and God's promises. So, so the normal Christian life is, is very aware of the fearful danger of unbelief, but it doesn't live paralyzed or terrorized uh, by it. It lives in faith. That fear rises, uh, only rises where faith starts to weaken. That's what it is. In fact, it only rises long enough to get us back into the peaceful fearlessness of faith, which, which drives us to our resting place uh, and, and the role of the Word of God this morning. Okay, and we're going to we start wrapping this up. Uh, verse 12, okay? We're only going two more verses. And we're going to be very quick on this. It's interesting, and this is partly why we, we walk through books of the Bible the way that we do, verse by verse, because much of the time, uh, these two verses can stand alone on their own merit, okay? And they can mean something, and we can cross-stitch them and put them on, you know, our walls, and we can get bumper stickers and t-shirts that say this, and, and we can feel really good about the role of the Word of God. But I want you to understand the context, okay? I want you to understand that before verse 12 happens, there were some other verses that led us to this point. And what we've talked about today is about the fear of unbelief and how we don't have to have it. Now, the beauty of verse 12 is that the writer immediately gives us a place to take our questions. And he says, if you're wondering, it's the Word. He says, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And my contention is, some of us don't read the Bible because we worry about that. Like, I don't like to be exposed, and I don't need to know the intentions of my heart because I'm not happy with the intentions of my heart. And the worst thing, guys, you can do is to try to hide from the Word there. The worst thing you can try to do is act as if God's not aware of all of that junk anyways. Not aware, not only is He not not only is he aware of that junk, he loves you in spite of that junk. And he wants, to, he wants you to understand that there is satisfaction for that restlessness. That there is pruning to make you grow healthier. Verse 13, And, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So, so in comparing the word of God to a sword, the writer and now hear me when I say this, because I, I say this with all love that the writer is not suggesting that God uses his word to slaughter the saints. Okay, and a lot of us, that's the way we think of it. We think that God really is, he's just like, nope, didn't do that. You know, done. That's what it sounds like when you cut off someone's head, I guess. So, so it, it, it's true that the Word cuts the heart of sinners with conviction and, and the Word defeats Satan and the Greek word, uh, and this is what you need to know, like the Greek word that's translated sword here um, isn't like a claymore, isn't like the Braveheart sword for you. 
fact, it's a, it's a small sword. Uh, it's considered a dagger. And the emphasis is on the power of the word to penetrate and to expose the inner heart of man. And God uses the word to enable us to see the sin and the unbelief of our own hearts. And that's an incredibly merciful gift to us. Incredibly merciful that the word exposes our hearts. And then if we trust God, the word enables our hearts to obey and to claim his promises. And this is why, why each believer should be diligent to apply himself or herself to, to heed and to hear God's word as much as you can. As much as you can. That in the word we see God and we see him as he really sees us. And, and we see ourselves as we really are. And this experience enables us to be honest with him to trust Him, to obey Him. So all this is possible, though. All this is possible because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the, that, that's the two He's in Hebrews 4, verse 10. That God rested when He finished the work of creation. That God's Son rested when He completed the work of new creation. That, that we may enter into His rest by trusting His Word and by obeying His will. We can do this as we listen to His Word and understand it and trust it and obey it. And only in this way can we claim an inheritance. And only in this way can we get to that place we're all longing for. Rest. Rest. Rest from from the wounds that we've received. Rest from the circumstances that, that we are not happy about. Rest from conflicts that we find ourselves in. But not just from the bad stuff. Rest from, from all the good stuff that just wears you out. I get, I get to rest in Him because He loves me and He knows me, and He cares for me. And so like I said, that word fear, we can, we can wear it different ways. And my intention isn't to water it down, but it also isn't to blow you up with it. But it's a very serious warning, exposing our hearts. Do I trust God or not? And I'm just telling you, if your argument is, well, I trust God mostly, you don't trust God. You don't. You trust in really what ends up being the idol of yourself. That's, that's what that amounts to. And you say, well, I don't really know where to start with trusting God fully with my life. And, and really, it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to every moment of every day say, God, I trust you even though I can't see the way this is going to play out. And perhaps one of the best places you can go today is to God. And in those moments of unbelief, you just say, Father, help my unbelief. And then you take your hands off the steering wheel. And you stay quiet long enough to listen. And you keep your eyes open long enough to see that His promises are without fail. I can tell you that all day long. I can. 
fact, by default, you expect me to say things like that. But that only goes so far, guys. It's not until you realize that that you see life with God take off. Our desire this week is to love God by. Please stand with me. So wrap up, let me make a couple things available. If you, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, today is the best day for you to give your heart to Him. We'll have a few people up here right by this door. We long to walk with you in that. We long to help you see the good news of Jesus. If you just need prayer, we long to pray with you. Man, one of my favorite moments of the last almost uh, 12 years uh, was last Sunday getting to watch some of you sit in very uncomfortable circles, praying. The message ended up being, man, that was horrible, but I loved it. We long to be a community that prays with and for one another. And what that takes is us being vulnerable with one another. It doesn't happen easily. And not that it should. If you need prayer this morning, we want to pray with you. We want to walk with you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for for the love that we get to share with one another because of your Son. I thank you that you care for us in the most perfect ways. And I pray we would be mindful of, of those moments of our unbelief. pray we'd be mindful of those moments when we struggle with trusting you. Father, we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would help our unbelief. And you would do so in a way that it's not about us producing, it's about us waiting and seeing you produce incredible things. We love you. In Jesus' name.